0: This is ISACA's Page 2 Podcast. Hello, my name is Holly Mangrum Willis. I am the Deputy Director of ISACA's Foundation, One in Tech, and I am excited to be hosting today's ISACA podcast. Joining me today is our special guest, Shannon Leitz, who is the Vice President of vulnerability labs at adobe so i am going to toss it to shannon and have her introduce herself because no one can do it better hello shannon thank you for joining us please share a little about yourself
1: hi Ollie. nice to see you it's really great to be here uh, a little bit about myself uh, i've been in this industry for over three decades uh, i am i've done a lot of different jobs uh for many women who have been around, as long as I have, you've probably done as many different jobs as I have, development, operations, I used to rack and stack equipment in data centers in a really long parka because it was freezing. Um, I, you know, I've been doing security for a really long time. I've always been offensive security minded. Um, I have run CyberSoft before. Uh, I have established lots of different things. Um Prior to being at Adobe, I was at Intuit for nine years, small stint. Uh, Loved the company, was really excited about being there. Super excited to join Adobe and bring all the things that I've learned over the years. And I've worked with ServiceNow, Sony, lots of Fortune 500s over the course of my career. It's been a really amazing career. And I'm interested in giving a lot back and helping other folks as they learn through this journey.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for that. Appreciate it. Um so the title of today's podcast is what will it take to reach DevSecOps ops maturity? What will it take, right? So before we before we get to the solution of it all, let's start with how did we get here? Why is the industry still relatively immature in the area of DevSecOps? ops?
1: Yeah, as somebody who helped coin that term, uh I will tell you that it's it's been interesting to really watch uh, what the industry has been going through over the decades. If I look back on the industry, one of the reasons why we needed DevSecOps is primarily because if you look back decades ago, the quality for software was defined in a standard that basically made it so that we had different kinds of quality attributes that software developers had to conform to as a standard. And in there, security and the adversarial nature of security, they were sort of left out. I think they were embedded into the word integrity or safety at the time. And I think that didn't quite cut it. So if you can imagine entire industry development software, software's eating the world, and it really didn't start with security being built in, it's obvious why we are here today the way we are. And I think that DevSecOps really helps us to start to make a, a change that's been necessary for nearly five decades.
0: That's interesting. Okay, so there wasn't a lot of intentionality behind securing what we were building, right? Yeah.
1: Well, even like even before then, like I think if you're looking back on history, uh, software didn't start out being as advanced or modern as we see it today. It started out with you know, systems that were really, really big, like the size of a room and like punch cards and ticker tapes. And, you know, back in the day when IBM was born, their machines were not the tiny little things that we have that are discreet or even tucked into our purse. Like, we'll start there. Uh, it goes back to a time when basically they weren't even sure how to link one machine to another. It took innovation to do that and get things to talk to each other. And then once you got those couple of machines talking, could more machines talk? And the advent of the email system that we know today, how did we actually derive everything into you know email it is today? I, I think what's really interesting about the whole journey is I don't think anybody could have imagined the adversarial nature of today's internet, of today's modern compute infrastructure that far back. Um, I think that there was some belief in things like RBAC that were built into these machines, world-based access controls. Um, you can go look at the original design of computers, and I think they actually had security built in. Because I think that at the time they were being built by government entities and uh, because they were the ones that could afford it. But as you started to see that natural progression from where something gets invented, basically the genesis phase of it, big fan of Simon Wardley, um, and really understanding how things eventually get commoditized, which is how his model really works to help you get educated about what's going to eventually happen in the future. I think it became really obvious that um, because we didn't have the quality standards for how folks were going to create compute workloads and commoditize, that naturally they got left out. And they got left out in such a way that you started to see that um, the customer started demanding having security put back in, like the beginning of the firewall, like the beginning of intrusion detection systems, all of those came from demand that said, hey, this is a problem and I need to solve it, whether it would have been large company entities like banks that were using computers to do some of their work, or as we kind of move forward the internet and now today looking at all of the different security technologies, they have arrived because essentially they were left out in the first
0: place. Interesting. Okay, so uh, so what I get from that is the blessing and the curse of connection, being more connected, being more in touch with one another, more access points creates more need for security. Right. And you also touched on a bit of the history. So let's bring us to today as we head into a new year and, you know, the world, even in the last couple years, has just changed. Right. Yeah. It's just it's just different. So why even now are current processes still not enough? Why are they not doing their job to really keep us secure?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, if I think about it, it still kind of stems back from that origination. Like we are targeting things like safety as our ultimate destiny, building things to be perfectly secured versus resilient or adversary resilient. And I think when you have a goal or a vision or a North star, that's incorrect. I don't think it's necessarily incorrect in this case, but probably not the the most, um, a desirable state, I would say, is I think we want to be both perfect and resilient as much as possible. But you have to do trade-offs to be able to make a lot of these things happen. And so I would say that that North Star has to be more adversary resilience. And so today, if we look at what's happening, you know, one of the big questions I've been asking for probably a decade now, if I think back truly is, you know, how many adversaries does an application have? Are we really looking at the data of what separates a customer from an adversary? Are we starting to look at our systems in a way that says, hey, you know, 99% of the traffic that flows through these systems is actually pretty good and customer benefit is there? Um, There's probably an in-between between adversary and customer that is basically your extended customer use case that sort of starts to abuse your system, Uh, and gets into that more adversarial space as well. So I I just think that the way compute and applications and innovation that have really come to bear, we, you know, it's not necessarily something you can just define by thinking about it. Um, Some of the the use cases that are out there for security, we can create a set of things that we have for standards or guidance and then basically build off of those standards and guidance. But if they aren't directed by data, if they aren't directed by sort of this North Star of adversary resilience, then essentially we're kind of guessing, if you ask me.
2: Adobe is changing the world through digital experiences. Great experiences have the power to inspire, transform, and move the world forward. And every great experience starts with creativity. Creativity is in our DNA, and the future belongs to those who create. Our game-changing innovations are redefining the possibilities of digital experiences. We connect content and data and introduce new technologies that democratize creativity, shape the next generation of storytelling, and inspire entirely new categories of business. Making these great experiences requires trust. At Adobe, we're committed to protecting the security, privacy, and availability of our products, systems, and data so you can deliver trusted experiences every day. You can learn more about our efforts by signing up to receive our bi-monthly Security at Adobe newsletter at adobe.com slash go slash security news.
0: Why do you think still in this day and age there still is this resistance to better engagement of security protocols, right? Why are development and operations folks looking at it as a design constraint, so to speak?
1: Well, I think that they should think about security as a design constraint. I'm not sure that there's actually pushback. What I've found most often is that developers and operations folks really do want to have security be built in, that they are on that same page because they don't want to have those you know, security recall events. No one really wants to push it down the track. So they're not necessarily interested in leaving it out per se. But one thing I will tell you is security has become relatively inaccessible because there's so much modern day software that's out there. That hasn't necessarily had it built in. I I remember the days of trying to help cloud capabilities figure out what native security capabilities they were going to need in their systems and platforms. I have over 40 cloud security patents because of it. And it was you know, dreaming up that state of a future world. It was doing the proofs of concept. It was taking that hard plunge into finding out that when you run a vulnerability scanner against a cloud environment that messed up your results and you have all this really disparate data and you might be chasing something that is somebody else's system and Oh, gosh, there's legal requirements for not scanning somebody's stuff that's on a different, you know, instance that you don't own. And like there's all these complications that come out of modern day software that I think requires somebody to step back and say, you know what, when we're going to modernize, it needs to be something that is thought about the security constraint. And so i don't think it's necessarily the cons- the security constraint itself that has to be in there but there's this balance between adversary and customer that i think is probably at the root cause of it all is when you talk to a developer they're solving for that 90% 80% use case. 80% of what we're going to do with my product is going to solve for this many customers. this is what the market cap is. you start hearing that language and you're like Yeah, but adversaries are your 1%, they're your edge case, that language of development and software really has left out this other side of the coin. And so what's neat is to be able to look at analytics data. I don't know how many security professionals, how many developers are looking at their analytics and saying, hey, I see something that's not quite right. I see my system being used in a way that I don't expect. Um, When they do look at it, you can already see like they raise their hand and say, hey, I'm seeing something weird here. Can you help me with it? And, and, you know, most of the time the security professional walks over, looks at the system and says, oh, yeah, yeah, that's an adversary or that's a researcher or that. And they know the answer to it. And so if you can imagine trying to combine those things all together into that perspective, You know, trying to have a developer solve all the security problems, probably not the right answer. I think the security professional making all the decisions, probably not the right answer. But trying to have, you know, solutions, accessible solutions for the developer to pick up and do right pretty intrinsically. uh, Having enough of those solutions for the modern day software, like one solution doesn't fit all. But we tend to do that because let's be realistic. How many you know, companies out there are, you know, I won't say this week because Log4J has really gotten a lot of investment, but you know, what is the investment that most companies are putting together? I'm really fortunate to work in organizations in my past and currently that are truly investing in the nature of security in a way that I'm really proud of. I'm really excited to be on the forefront of things like DevSecOps, on the forefront of cloud security, on being able to think about building it in, making it native. Like I do feel like my work in the last 10 years has allowed a developer to go figure out how to do key management in the cloud. They press a button, they add a thing, and all of a sudden they're doing key management. Whoa, it's possible, right? Uh, logs, hey, I can turn on logs and I can get them. And you see advances coming, like there's some of the work I'm doing with ONUG and the cloud decorator that they have for log events. And so, you know, finding places where you can really make a difference in DevSecOps is what I think is making it come to life. I also think it's not mature yet because it's an emerging capability. Like, you know, if you look back on software, it was starting to take life five plus decades ago and we're still seeing it evolve and modernize and like it's not quite there and there's new languages and there's new reasons to do things. You know, I I just think that what's interesting is there probably has been a perspective of we'll get to done at some point. And I don't actually think that that's true. We're probably not going to arrive at done. It's
0: always evolving. Yeah. It's always evolving. So I'm going to push a little bit. And the reason why is because you do a whole over 40 patents. You're an innovator in this space. Rub your crystal ball. What is your prescription for bridging that gap between security professionals and DevOps, you know, going forward? Because you you spoke about the key management system and the Key management, yeah. Yeah. So what's your prescription? Crystal ball? Well,
1: one, I think you have to put yourself in the position of understanding how technology will be used by consumers. So there really is a lot of adaptation at this point towards voice-enabled systems. I don't know how many people say, you know, hey, this, hey, that, uh, this one, that one's name, whatever it might be. And I'm not going to say it because I might set somebody's (laughs) up. <laughs> and gosh, hopefully in the future we solve that. Cause like, that's a thing on my list of like, this is annoying. Um, but I do think that the future, what the future holds for us all is amazing technology that is really guided by some of these use cases and that abuse cases are actually being considered from day one, that you really do know who might abuse your system when you're being the designer of it, that you might have adversary categories that you're trying to understand so you can build against them. Um, I I think we talk about a lot, you know, how the actual technical work gets done and how we decide on things, but I don't see sometimes the decisions being made earlier on, like, hey, you know, what are the tolerances? Some of the work in the FAIR Institute is actually quite inspirational, because they're talking about loss. And they're starting to talk about like, what are your thresholds? And what are your tolerances? That's amazing work. If you look at what ISACA is doing with its control capabilities, also amazing work. So my crystal ball of the future kind of looks like something that I've really believed in, which is, I think security professionals really need to figure out how to fork the code base of the software professional and figure out how to get that software to be passable by all of the different security tests and adversary resilient. And then basically come back and say, hey, look, I have R&D'd your stuff and here's what I recommend. And it becomes that conversational point. So, you know, code forking, I think I've seen a few of those things really work for the future. Um, I think it's really hard to have a security expertise built into one person because there's so many different vantage points so i think we really do have to figure out how we're going to collaborate and have goals i've been invested in um, things like humanocracy by gary hamill i've been investing in metrics building there's a lot of work that's been done by gartner i've been invested in trying to figure out how to create a kpi called securability so that Folks can have that North Star about how they get up every day and know whether or not their systems are resilient enough, that enough of the information is actually coming together for that. So I do think that there is a a future that is going to be a pretty cool one in terms of how security becomes more native to modern workloads. But I I think that it's going to require us to start to realize that we have to change, that we have to invest, that personally every person has to say, I'm not okay with this process any longer. I need to innovate. I need to improve. I need to actually move forward. And that that current state of being just okay with the status quo or quote done, or it's a checklist, that's what I would say is the rallying cry for the industry to make this bold move to the next phase.
0: It reminds me of something I hear in almost every webinar in the digital trust space, which is security is everyone's responsibility.
1: Yeah, I, I remember saying that to a whole bunch of people when I was starting to get them to realize that, and it was it was a development crowd, security is everyone's responsibility because at the time what the argument was is it was our job. You're not doing a good job security professionals. And, and I think security is everyone's responsibility. I think we have to demand, even as consumers, this is not okay with me, I need these security features. I don't think enough people actually say, I want my system to be secure and I demand it be secure and that they vote with their dollars. And I think that's the kind of thing that has to take place.
0: Mm. And I think the importance here is to do so proactively and not retroactively, right? But, you know, like you said, understanding what those adversaries could be and planning for those eventualities, which is going to take collaboration.
1: It does. And, and having the conversation, like, Security is not going to get implanted in all these modern capabilities overnight. It is going to take time. And if folks say that they have an adversary sorry, resilient capability right now, I would say, you know, you show me the perfect software that's out there and show me your numbers because I'd be really curious about it. I think it's a conversation. I, I'm i really proud of some of the work that's being done by the thought leaders that are out there, um, especially, you know, folks like uh, this, the CISO at Equifax who just did a, A brief um, celebration to the industry. I thought that that work was really well done. That, you know, him celebrating how much uh, the industry is leaning in and we're having conversations that are hard and we're going to try and get, you know, to that 90% marker so we can reduce as much adversary attack surface that's out there as an industry. Just coming together and having those conversations, I think, is meaningful.
0: Awesome. So if I could press on a little bit. Um, most security and development teams are familiar with lists like OWASP's top 10 and Sun's top 20 security controls. Why do you think focusing too heavily on those lists and resources is actually doing us a security disservice?
1: Security is not one size fits all. And most Ooh. of those checklists that are out there They mean well. They do set a great fabric for us to all learn from. They bring us together. They truly are needed. But I do think that folks need to understand that they are not the only prescription, that it is a custom problem. Every company has got a different enactment. They've got different software they create. You can't apply a one-size-fits-all to the entire industry and truly create the adversary resilience that has to happen. I'm also not on the side of uh, go build your own security and um, having, you know, uh, the other side of the coin come to bear either. I think standard security is necessary. I think we've got to come up with solutions that the industry can get to a resilient level. I think using those common practices and solutions is needed. And I think that's where the industry needs to come together. Like like I said, uh, involving myself um, very you know, specifically into the places where I think that change will happen has been deliberate on my part. And the reason why is because I think that the industry deserves to get your expertise involved in places where you can actually build something together that could solve 90% of the problem from day one. That gives us the rest of the time to focus on the things that make us all different. And, And truly, I think if you go to the diversity problem, you know, we are, there's a good portion of all these companies that are the same, and a good portion that's different. And so, you know, my perspective, I've been at a lot of companies over my career. They've all been different. We've applied the checklist on a lot of those different companies. And what I found is like, some things work, some things don't work. And trying to figure out how to adapt those checklists is part of building expertise, is understanding how to have the conversation at a business level and and migrate towards that adaptation.
0: Which also makes it uber important for diversity of thought at the table, right? To have folks from different walks of life, different experiences, a global approach, right? In order to make sure that we're touching as many points and revealing as many blind spots as we possibly can. Um, And as you said earlier at the top of this conversation, it doesn't sound like the work will ever be done because it continually evolves as, we evolve as people as our world changes as you know things that might be indirectly related who would have thought that you know the way forward out of a pandemic would be technology the way to sustain us and to keep us together and connected and then to move forward to keep us safe to keep us alive is firmly rooted in technology It has allowed us a lot of comfort. Yes. It has. It's
1: allowed us to do this and not see the days of 1918 again. If you think about it, we're able to do so much more. We're able to to be able to get this, um, you know, entire world working together from technology. So, yeah, it, it doesn't surprise me to see us lean in on tech. I think it has brought some of those additional problems to bear as well. So, yeah, to your point, I I do think that this is definitely an interesting time to be thinking these thoughts, too. It's also why there's so much opportunity to invest in security, to invest in tech, is because there's so many more problems to solve that we didn't even conceive of.
0: So many more problems and not enough people to solve them. I think I read in your introduction to Adobe, three million open positions in the digital trust space. For each person, you can imagine a security threat of some sort. That's, I mean, that's incredible. So investing and resourcing the industry, cybersecurity, DevSecOps, absolutely. It's a new forefront. This is where yes. I think
1: women like ourselves have an opportunity to help build the next generation of women that could join into these, you know, positions. They've been left open for a really long time, so they're not getting filled. And the and really the last forefront of being able to get them filled is going to be the women in this industry showing up and being interested in tech and feeling like they can start from zero and get there and that we're going to create confidence in them. I think some of the programs out there are doing an amazing job. They are. They truly are. There's so many women's programs out there that are doing an amazing job. But my question is, what's the goal? What's our intent? How do we get those three million filled? And that may even be opening up positions where we're gonna have a woman join as um you know somebody who's going to learn over time because she may not have the skills. she has to reskill. she has to you know restart her entire career because she just had children. Um there's lots of different reasons why we have to figure out how to be more open minded about that problem.
0: Excellent. And so to segue into that, in addition to what you just said, what are some key best practices? that organizations could implement starting now to help change their security culture?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, You know, changing your security culture starts with that statement, security is everyone's responsibility. I think accessible security is our next forefront. I think measurement helps you change your culture because transparency is the best disinfectant for creating that new open security culture. I think trying to get to the point where you understand that having a difference between how you think about different people is actually not a benefit in security. I think bringing people together, sharing information, um, one of the biggest challenges in security is sharing information and sharing it openly, proudly, and trying to work on it as a real problem. I remember when I tried to make this change a decade ago, folks were like, you're going to what? You're going to experiment with security. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to put something out and see how it does and figure out how many adversaries are out there. And, you know, honestly, over the course of this last decade, I've learned a lot. You know, scanners are becoming better. They're getting faster. They're finding problems faster. You know, as an industry, we need to be spending, you know, similar amounts of capability to get to the point where we can find our own problems faster than adversaries. And and that's a, a race in the future.
0: Absolutely. Well, we have come to the end of our time together. Do you have any parting thoughts? I've truly enjoyed this conversation. Um, And so I just want to, if you have anything else you would like to add, now is the time.
1: Yeah, Holly, this is amazing. And I really love these series because I've gotten to watch several of the folks out there that have done these. I will tell you, I think we have a really bright future ahead for security. I think that there's so many people who mean well. I think we really do need to think, though, about how we ourselves contribute and that we need to start operating like security is not solved. It's actually a solvable you know, problem, but that there's probably a myriad of ways to solve things. And we've got to open that door and the mindset associated with solving those problems long-term. And I also think that opening the door to colleagues and talking to people about security in general has to become more accessible. So I would just really push on those things of accessibility, having conversations, starting to talk about the fact that the industry is not perfect and and actually figuring out what problems we're all trying to solve and where we're going to put our investment is probably the biggest change we could make that will help us solve this multi-trillion dollar problem.
0: Thank you so much. This has been incredible and I look forward to working with you again soon. Thank you everyone for joining this episode of ISACA's podcast. We hope that you join us next time. Again, my name is Holly Mangrum-Willis. Thank you to Shannon Leeds. We appreciate you and we will see you next time. Thank you for having me today. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of Page to Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode.